do that, okay? <laughs> Miguel. I was wondering, I've been approaching marriage as a science. I didn't realize it was an art. That, maybe that's my problem, huh? Yeah. All right. I think I need that. Um, well, it's great to see all of you uh, mingling uh, during the, the time. It just reminds me as I was walking around watching the conversations happen, how important it is that community take shape here and that we pursue it and go after it. And we leave a little bit extra time. If you're new, you see that. We leave a little bit extra time um, to, to, for people to be able to form those relationships. Even on Sunday, it's hard to do with all of us gathered together, but it's super important. One of the other things I love is that throughout the week, I hear about people who know so-and-so or are really good friends with so-and-so. I didn't even know they knew each other, and they're supporting one, one another and encouraging one another. And I just want to reiterate that this is, this is why we gather together um, so that we can be the community on mission together, so that we can be serving each other and getting to know each other and using the gifts that God has given every single one of us. If you're here and you're part of this community, you've been given a gift, a spiritual gift, and you are to, to use that in the community to bless others. We need it. God intends for us to have it. So don't put it under a bushel and hide it, but bring it out and share it with the community. We all want to do that. The other thing I wanted to mention was baptism. Uh, Dave already said we're going to have a baptism meeting right after uh, the worship service today. So we're, I'm going to be right up front here. And it's just informational. If you don't know if you want to be baptized, you can still come to this meeting. Um, and I would just remind us all that, that Jesus you know, uh, sort of commands us to be baptized if we're a follower in Christ. And so if you have not been, it doesn't matter if you came to faith years and years and years ago, if you never had the opportunity to be baptized, then maybe now's the time. We want to share that wonderful, joyful experience with you. Uh, and that'll be coming up hopefully in November. So please come afterwards and, and we'll talk about baptism, what it means. It's one of the sweetest, most wonderful things to, to, to see how baptism connects into all that God is and who He is and what He's done in our lives. And so I want to help you make those connections afterwards. So just be a few minutes that we'll be talking uh, about baptism. All right, good. Well, let's jump in. We continue in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 20. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we would hand one to you. Just raise your hand. I want you to be able to follow along in the Scripture. Um, that's the most, important, the most important words of any of the words this morning are the words that come out of the Scripture, not out of my mouth. So I um, want you to be able to see those clearly. Um, people for eons and eons and generations have been calling these words to bring out their treasures. And so want you to be in close contact with that. Um, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 20. In that Bible that we hand out, it's page 751, page 751. Let me go ahead and pray uh, before we jump in. God, thank you for the time that you give us. We are blessed to be in this place together. Uh, it's a short little window in our week, and yet uh, so much can happen in it. And so we pray that you would be with us today in a powerful way. Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts, whether we're somebody who's just exploring Christianity uh, in a beginning kind of a way, or we're somebody who has been walking with you years and years, we ask your presence upon us um, to help us to see you more clearly today than when we came in. Guide us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So I uh, was thinking about this passage, and, and, and my mind was going this week to um, some things I've been learning about jazz musicians. Back in the 20s, there were a number of jazz musicians who would get together and they would do these things called cutting contests, especially the pianists in the 20s and then in the 30s. So you had uh, James P. Johnson, you had Fats Waller, you may have heard of some of these names. You had Willie the Lion Smith. And these guys would get together in, they would call them rent parties. So they'd get together in homes in, in New York and they would have competitions 
and they would play the piano, and, and, and one would solo, and then the other one would solo, and, and they would try to outdo each other going back and forth. And this is sort of how uh, we came up with this, the, the way jazz solos, you know, in a song, you go back and forth. Part of it comes from these guys in these, in these cutting contests, they call them. And they would, have, they would have rent parties, so there'd be somebody who was having trouble paying their rent. Their rent was due. They having trouble paying their rent, so they would call a cutting contest, and the pianist would come, and they would charge admission, because, you know, it's going to be fun to see these guys going at it, and then they would use the money to pay the rent for the apartment, and they'd be able to stay in their house. How cool is that? Cutting contest. So uh, then later on, this guy, Art Tatum, came along, and apparently they were in a bar having a cutting contest, and the three greats that I just mentioned were all there, and Art Tatum was this young kid who comes along, and he just silenced them all. And it was amazing um, after he played. Um, uh, uh, James P. Uh, Johnson said, um, I guess we'd never heard the piano or that song played before. Because he did, was so, so amazing that they thought, man, this is a whole nother level. Anyway, cutting contests. This text reminds me of cutting contests. Because in it, Jesus is up against the religious leadership in Israel. And they are kind of going back and forth in this dialogue. And, and there's a, it's a bit of a competition in a sense. Uh, the only thing is that it's like Jesus is playing a fugue by Bach, right? And the religious leaders are playing chopsticks. Those of you who are not from here, uh, chopsticks is sort of the simplest piano piece that you can play. And so they're playing out chopsticks, trying to win this cutting contest with Jesus. And he's equipped with a fugue by Bach, which is some of the most complicated piano playing that you can play. Anyway, just to give you that image, as we read through this text, this is what's going on. Now, we're in a new section in the Gospel of Luke. Um, We kind of turned over last week. In the previous section, uh, you might recall, I mentioned that a lot of the encounters with Jesus are what could be characterized as open encounters. In other words, um, there was a sense in which, yeah, you can respond to Jesus Um, He's going after the the ones who are on the outcast, the fringe, the people who who are disconnected, and he's giving them a chance to come to him, and there's a warmth to it, and and just sort of a beauty, you know, people like Zacchaeus and and the blind beggar and these people, and and they come, and there's this change, this beautiful change. Now we've crossed over. The encounters with Jesus are of a different nature. They're mostly with the religious religious leaders, and I would call them closed encounters. In other words, both sides, Jesus and the religious leaders, have sort of hardened into their views, and so now there's a clash that's going on. There's five of these encounters, then there's a little bit about um, the, the, the second coming of Jesus, and then we get to the cross. And so then we'll be done with the Gospel of Luke. And so um, the important lessons, though, in this next section uh, that I see, first of all, reminds us that, that, that there is a, a, an end to the time of decision with respect to Jesus Christ. That's a really important point. There is an end to the time of decision with respect to Jesus Christ. All of us have to decide, what are we going to do with Jesus Christ? We all have to make that decision. And God in His grace gives us oftentimes 80 years to make the call. But at some point, we need to make that decision. What are we going to do with a person of Jesus Christ? And we never know if we're going to have all those 80 years or it's going to be shorter. But in His grace, we often have quite a bit of time to ask the question. But it's not sufficient just to sit around and ask and and sort of deliberate endlessly about what to... Because that ends up being a decision. That ends up being the decision away from Christ. 
not a decision for Christ. And so uh, this text reminds us, these texts in this last section remind us that the time will come when we need to make a decision. And that's why there's a kind of an urgency about this whole gospel proclamation. That's why this year in our, our theme commission, we're, we're sending each other out into the world to proclaim the gospel because there is a time in which a person must make a decision. And for the people we love, it's very important. Now, the other piece that is going to come up over and over again in this section um, is the nature of spiritual blindness. It's the nature of spiritual blindness. In particular, this week, what we're going to be looking at uh, is going to be a real kind of a study of the way that spiritual blindness works in a person. And, and this is kind of our struggle, too, if you, you bear with me a little bit. Uh, don't, don't we struggle with this? Wouldn't we like to see God in all of His fullness and, and who He is? Wouldn't we like to know uh, His love for us in, in all of its depth? Wouldn't we like to, to kind of have that clear picture? We got up this morning. I don't know if you got up early this morning, but if you did, you looked out and there was a kind of a fog everywhere. In fact, it kind of grew as the morning went on a little bit. Um, and then it dissipated away. And, and, and isn't it wonderful when the fog dissipates and you just see clearly and the sun starts to shine? And spiritually, we all have that longing for the fog of the veil of this world to, to be lifted so that we can see with clarity. And the Bible says that that's in part of what heaven is like. Heaven is, is where you see clearly. You get to see Jesus face to face. And we, we long for that in the deepest parts of who we are. And, and that's kind of the, what's going on in this text. And, and the more that we can do to clarify our vision with respect to God, then the better it will be. And that's what we're going to do this morning as we open this text up together, is to hopefully clarify our vision, how to avoid spiritual blindness to some degree, so that we can see God, see His work in our lives, see who He is and what He wants to do, and who we are in light of that, and what we ought to be doing in light of that. So... Luke chapter 20, verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, he's in the last week of his life before the cross, and then, of course, his life continues through the resurrection. But he's in the last week here. He's in Jerusalem, headed towards the cross, and he's teaching in the temple each day, and he's, he's preaching the gospel, gospel of the kingdom. So while he's doing it, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders, came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? Now, I read it like that because they're not genuinely interested in where Jesus got the authority. The text we read last week tells us that what their real motive was to, was to destroy Jesus Christ. They're wanting to seek and to destroy Jesus Christ. Uh, and they're asking, why, how, what, how, by what authority do you do these things? They're hoping to catch him uh, in saying what would be the truth, which was, I do this by the authority of God, but for them, that would be blasphemy. And blasphemy would be punishable by death. They're hoping that he'll come out with that, and that in doing so, he will seal his own death warrant by being explicit about how he has been teaching and the people have been listening, how he's been accomplishing miracles and how he's been in the temple to cleanse the temple. So they're laying a trap, and it's a delicate moment for Jesus. This is where we get into the cutting contest a little bit. It's a delicate moment for Jesus, and they've laid a trap for him. And Jesus counters. 
in the next verse. He answered them, verse 3, I also will ask you a question. Now, how would you like to be asked a question by Jesus? I'm not sure if I would be relishing that. Um, now, tell me. It's going to sound so simple, and yet this is so profound. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, part of you says, Jesus, where, what? You know, but it's kind of like one of those solos that, you know, you don't quite get it the first time, and you have to sit and listen to it over and over again before it really clicks the, the genius of what the person is doing. Jesus, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, it's, it's really hard to overstate the genius of this reply. From, from a rabbinic standpoint, so as the rabbis would engage in this kind of dialogue, Jesus outmaneuvers them because it was, it was common practice, standard practice to, to return a question with a question. But if you return a question with a, with a question that stumps them, then you've sort of got the upper hand, and that's what Jesus, that's what Jesus does. They have to reply, but... They're not sure how. Um, from a social standpoint, this question um, is profound because it exposes their people-pleasing ways, as we're going to see when I read the next few verses. From a theological standpoint, it's a genius question because it sets them, it, it, it frames them in a kind of a conundrum. If they say that the baptism of, of John was of God, then they stand... Uh, convicted of not having following, followed John because that's what they did. They didn't believe John the Baptist who came before Jesus. Um, if they say that it was of man, well, most of the people believe that it, John was in fact a prophet because of what happened around him and there were rules for understanding who a prophet was and they, they believed that John was a prophet. And so they're in this theological conundrum. How do we answer the question? Is it from God or from, from man? So Jesus puts them in that. And then, and then lastly, he answers the question. Because the answer to the question of whether John is of God or of man is the same answer as whether Jesus is, because they're part of the same flow. And he does so without exposing himself to the charge of blasphemy. This is the Christ. And, and, and we talk about Jesus being the most humble man and the most you know, um, loving and kind person. Um, he's also the smartest person who ever lived, okay? Uh, and so let's just add that in the mix as well. And you see it in the answer to these religious elite uh, as they're in this sort of a cutting contest. Now, verse 5, and they, that is the, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, and they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? Believe John. But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. You imagine that moment, right? The tension is thick in the air. You know, uh, the, the, the chief priests finish their solo, and then Jesus solos. And, and afterwards, everybody says, we've never heard music before because of the way he answered and the brilliance and the genius. And they're stumped. They don't know what to do. And, and then I love what Jesus does next, verse 8. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He makes use of the effective tool of silence in communication. It's a great strategy, which is a good one, by the way, uh, for all of us when people are being stubborn and refusing to listen 
to what we're have, we have to say. So you parents, especially, right? Uh, there are times when kids aren't listening and you feel like if you just use more words, then they'll hear, right? Some of you are shaking your head knowing that that's not the way it works. Teachers, I'm sure, anytime, anybody who's in a mentoring kind of position, there is a strategic use of silence, and Jesus uses it here, and it's a great lesson for us. But let's talk about the, the spiritual blindness that leads Jesus to this place where he has to use silence with them in the first place. And in so doing, I think what we're going to learn from this text is, is how we might avoid some of that spirit, same spiritual blindness manifested in the, in, the, in the chief priests and their ilk uh, so that we might have the fog removed and a little bit more clarity with respect to who God is and what he's doing in our lives. Now, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they ultimately, it's not, it's not clear in this moment, but they end up on the wrong side of history with respect to God and his work. Um, they're not on God's side. And we want to be on God's side of history, right? We, we, we want our lives to be part of the stream of the redemptive plan that God is working in the world. We don't want to be on the other side of that. We don't want to be against it because we know ultimately one day that's the stream in history that will win, that will be victorious. We want our lives to be on that side. And the key for us is to move away from spiritual blindness and toward clarity, toward clarity. And now we're not going to see clearly uh, until heaven, but the chief priests uh, are overcome by several blinding forces that we can seek to avoid that will enable us to have greater clarity even on this side of heaven. In other words, there are some, some ways in which they're conducting themselves and that they've been caught up in, and God wants to use the, the Scripture to free us from those entrapments so that we can, we can see more clearly who He is and what He's doing and thereby walk with Him in the stream of His victory in this world. All right, so what are these? The first one is the chief priests and the, their ilk are caught up in approval of others. Do you see that in that text? After Jesus states his question, you can kind of feel them going away to huddle and ask, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to respond to what Jesus has said? And they're deliberating with one another, trying to figure out what they do. And and what is the basis of their deliberation? It's how the people are going to respond, right? You see that? They're so concerned about how the people will respond uh, that they they don't know what what to do and because they can't win. They can't win guiding their life by the response of people. Right? You ever felt that way? You, if you're going to live your life according to the response and the approval of people, you can't win. Because there will always be people on one side and then always be people on the other side and you can't please everybody. It's impossible. And... So what's the solution? I always love, I'm always fascinated by sunflowers. Um, sunflowers are this amazing flower that they, they track with the sun somehow. It's amazing. What if you had this diseased sunflower that tracked not with the sun but with the moon? So at nighttime it would run across. What would happen to the sunflower? It would die, right? Because it wouldn't be receiving the nutrients that it needs, that it must gather from the shining brilliance warmth of the sun. Now, 
The same is true for us. If we track with the sun, then we get the nutrients that we need. We get the, all that we need to be able to thrive and to live. But if we track with the moon, then we won't get it. We won't get what we need. Uh, and, yet, and yet more than ever, um, when we, the, the, the temptation to, to be a people pleaser is upon us because of all the social media that's around us. And, and, and all the ways that people can get our attention at any moment, and, and all those things that you can post you know, on Facebook, and maybe a lot of people will like it, and then you'll feel valued, um, or people will retweet your tweets, or, and, and, and you'll sense this warmth in your soul of being valuable to this world. And, and so there's this, these myriad ways that we can seek approval from others, um, and it's not just the social media, it's in real life, right? When you're talking with somebody and you're reading their face and you're, you're, wanting, to, you're wanting them to respond in the way that you want. And, 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 and to live that way is like a sunflower tracking with the moon instead of the sun. Because we were made to live for the approval of God. Did a word study on loving kindness this week. This is a little bit disconnected. But one of the commentators said something about loving kindness. It's the Hebrew word hesed, which is probably the most important word in the Old Testament, one of them. And he said that, that, that hesed, loving, God's loving kindness, is the life-giving force in the Old Testament. If you read through the Psalms and you see how many times people draw from God's hesed, His loving kindness, it's, it's the life-giving force in our lives. And that's where we want to be pointing towards God to receive His Hesed, His loving kindness. And if we aim ourselves at other people, we'll never get what we ultimately need. And the chief priests prove that point. They're, they're caught in this trap of seeking the approval of others. Here's the amazing thing we, the key to life is to seek God's approval. And here's the amazing thing is we have it already. Amen? We have it in Jesus Christ. The statement that God made in Jesus Christ on the cross is that you are, you are as loved as you could ever be by me because I gave my one son, the most precious thing I have, I gave my one son on the cross to die for your sins, to demonstrate my love for you, to prove my love for you, to win you back, in, to, to, to prove to you that you have favor with me in Christ. So the most important thing is that we seek the favor of God and we have it already. How freeing is that? Right? And now we're just on this journey with God, learning how to incorporate the things that He approves of into our lives, the commands that He's given us. We're just learning with Him as He guides us out of His great loving kindness and He takes us on this path to incorporate what's most important to Him into our lives. But we've already got His favor. We don't need to seek it from others. We just need to keep aimed at Him, following Him across the sky each and every day. So the first one is the approval of others. It's a force that creates spiritual blindness in us. The second one is this word expedience that I'm using. I try to find a different word that would be more simplistic, but this word is the the one that captures... You see in the chief priest, you see the power of self-interest at work. They are the religious elite, and here comes Jesus, and he's threatening their position, and they, 
don't want their position to be threatened so badly that they're willing even to kill Jesus for it. They do what's expedient in order to be able to keep their position and their place. They're willing even to kill a man. There's a documentary, I think it's coming out this week, about Lance Armstrong, the cyclist, American cyclist, who was found to have been using drugs throughout his entire career. And what's amazing about the story of Lance Armstrong is is how vehemently he denied over and over and over again that he used performance-enhancing drugs throughout his career. I mean, he was on the offensive in a way that was just incredible to see, and then finally got to that place where he had to, to come clean, as it were, and admit that he had been using drugs all along. And you see in that the power of self-interest at work in a person. I must win, I will win at all costs, and I will lie and cheat and scheme and do whatever I have to do to make sure that I win. And that is the force at work in these chief priests and their ilk, and it creates this incredible spiritual blindness because they cannot see Jesus for who he really is. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all have to admit that there is a bit of that inside of us at work as well. And so the question is, how do we get rid of that blinding force, that desire for the expedient, that self-focus and self-interest that keeps us from seeing Christ? And the answer, I'm sure there are many of them, we don't have time to, to explore this as much as we might like, But the answer is that at the core of this kind of expediency that these chief priests exhibit is idolatry of self, right? That's kind of the initial place we have to come to is to recognize the power of idolatry of self. It's like we all have a throne in the middle of our being and whoever's sitting on that throne becomes the guiding force of our lives. We make decisions based on what will benefit that person on that throne, And the sinful way of living is to put ourselves in that seat and to make decisions according to what will benefit us and to to be self-centered in that way. And it's really hard to say, I'm going to not do that. I'm going to try hard not to live for myself. It's really hard to just to will yourself into that place. But if you can if you can get somebody else who's bigger and better to sit in that seat, then there'll be no space left for you, right? And so it's a better strategy, to, rather than to try your hardest to, to try and not be self-centered all the time, to put somebody else in the center seat of your life and let that shape the way you live. And Jesus Christ is that person who is intended to be at the very center of our lives, and and we've been defining, you know, maturity in as as somebody who is is dead to self and alive to Christ. That Christ has taken that place in a person's life, and and we won't find that maturity in perfection until heaven, but we can, with the help of God, continue to move forward. And and again, we could talk. This is a huge subject, but Robert Murray McShane writes that uh, for every look at self take 10 looks at Christ. And, and as I sort of play with this idea, how do I get myself out of the, the driver's seat of my life and get Christ in the center of it? There's something about what do I obsess about? What do I think about most? And then that, in turn, 
uh, shapes what's at the center of my life. And so for every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. One of the things that, that I just find that as God in his, in his sort of movement in my life of moving more to the center, which, which takes time and, and, and we have to be patient and it's his work. He has to do it. He has to kick us out of the seat in some ways and place himself there. It's just, but, but, but what we would discover is a deeper hunger. So I get up in the morning and I read my Bible and I'm finding that as, as, as I come to the end of my day, more and more I want to open my Bible again and take another look at Christ. Okay? So that morning time has become very routine for me and I'm very consistent. I need that. If I don't, if I don't look at Christ right when I get up in the morning, you know, I just really feel it throughout the whole day, and I'm off. And, I, I, you know, and, and now I feel like Christ is moving more into the center. He's saying, and look at me before you go to bed. Just read a chapter. Just go to bed. Go to sleep meditating. Take another look at me, Andrew, instead of yourself. And there's something about this process in which Christ moves into the center of our lives that, that, that is the cure to that expedient kind of living where, where what we want most is what's going to benefit us instead of benefiting Christ, who takes the center. The third one is this force that's blinding, is their ignorance of God's ways. These chief priests have a kind of ignorance of God, in particular, God's surprising ways. So God moves in many ways in this particular text. They're ignorant of his surprising ways. They're the, they're, they think they know how it's supposed to go in this religious realm. They think they know how it's supposed to go. They're the religious elite. And so if God's going to do something special, which, which by the way, is what they've been waiting. The people of Israel have been waiting for God to do something special. The air is pregnant with expectancy. God, when are you going to work? We're enslaved. We're under the thumb of the Roman Empire. When are you going to free us? When are you going to do something spectacular? And they're just waiting. All people are waiting. And they think they know how it's going to happen. That it's going to be through them. And then this Jesus comes along, and his name is just Jesus, and he's riding on a donkey, and he enters into the town, and he's not part of the religious elite, and and the people are listening to him, and everything they expected for how it was supposed to take place is is changed, is turned upside down. They They don't understand what's going on. God, it seems like you're doing something special, but we're not part of it, and it's not what we expected. And they, they can't adjust to what God is doing in the world through this humble man, Jesus Christ. They can't make the adjustment because they think they know how it's supposed to be. And it becomes for them a kind of a spiritual blindness. And I would say that much spiritual blindness comes from us, quote unquote, knowing how things are supposed to be. We get this particular idea in our heads of the way God should work in our lives. And we're praying for that particular way in which He should work in our lives. And until He does it in that particular way, He hasn't worked. And we will refuse to accept that anything else going on in our lives has anything to do with God because it doesn't look the way that we expect it to look. And it becomes a tremendous blind spot for us. And one of the ways that we can remove the veil, is to come to God with a little bit different approach. Instead of this, God, um, I want you to do this in my life. How about coming to God with this sort of sense of, God, something's wrong here. Will you work in some way to fix it, to address it, 
to heal it. There's a kind of an openness in that prayer that allows God to be God, right? Because in the other one, we're saying, God, I'd like you to fix it. I'd like you to fix it in this way. Rather than, God, you know better than me how it needs to be fixed. It's like David when he was, you know, the consequences of his counting uh, the census, counting, and, and, and God was bringing, he, he said, God said, um, I'll give you two options. I can punish you in this way or that way. You choose. And David said, you know what, God? I'll just throw myself on your mercy. You choose for me, right? And there's a little bit of that in the way that we, we approach God. God, I'll just throw myself on your mercy. You choose how you're going to deal with the situation in my life. And by so doing, we keep our eyes open to the unique ways. And this is the thing that, 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 that just floors me in my walk with Jesus is how surprising are his solutions, right? I don't want to be blind to that by latching on to my own small-minded solutions. Ignorance of God's surprising ways can be a blind spot. And then the last one is this refusal to reckon with, with Jesus' authority. When Brent preached two weeks ago, he talked about how Jesus comes on the donkey, which is, which is a royal way to enter into the city. And, and he comes on the donkey, and it's a sign of humility, and it's a sign of peace, really. And then he made this great comment about one day Jesus will come on the horse. We describe that in the book of Revelation, which he'll come in power and might and authority, and it will not be peace at that moment. But Jesus has come in peace at this, this moment. And yet underneath it, you can still see the authority of Christ. We've been joking about this a little bit. When you, when you see these passages in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus, where Jesus is on the donkey, so humble, and he's this and that, underneath it, you see this, this, this steel-spined man who is who is consumed with a vision, and nothing will derail him from this vision. And not only is he consumed with a vision, he has the authority to bring it about. It looks like Jesus is such a victim, and yet when you see the Old Testament quotes and the way things happen, you realize that Jesus is, in fact, in control of everything that's happening in this latter part of the Gospel of Luke. There's no surprise for him. It's exactly the way he wants it to be. And what that says to us, and, 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 and what, this, what this text is saying to us, is that Jesus has an authority that we have to reckon with. He can shape the way the world around him works. He can deal with all the challenges that come to him. In what looks like total defeat, he will bring about the greatest victory. Jesus comes with a kind of authority. These chief priests are having a hard time seeing that. They're having a hard time grappling with the authority of Jesus, with reckoning with the authority of Jesus Christ. They don't submit. Now, the word submission is not a popular term for us these days. Um, in our culture where we can have everything we want, um, at the, really the flick of a finger, um, we've got resources to draw from that are abundant. We have opportunities we have freedom, we have comfort. In an environment like that, submission doesn't become popular, right? We're used to being in control and being in authority. But somehow, whether it's popular, popular or not, we have to grapple with the reality of Jesus' authority. The strength and the power in Christ that is so, so 
clearly articulated in the end of this chapter, which I mentioned last week. Jesus refers to himself. He says uh, in verse 17, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. In other words, Jesus is compared to a cornerstone. Either we build our house on top of it, or it falls on us and crushes us. Those are the only two options. That's who he is. The authoritative Christ, the powerful Christ. Uh, We can either build on him, or we can be crushed by him. And the chief priests and their ilk have a hard time reconciling themselves to the authority of Jesus Christ. And so they're crushed. But the message for us is that we can build on the cornerstone. But it's going to take both the affection that we've seen in the loving kindness of Jesus Christ, but also a little bit of the submission, or maybe a lot of the submission, that comes from knowing who He is in His power and His authority over us. This is one of the areas where I feel like God is pressing in on me. I love to draw close to Christ because I've connected with His loving kindness for me. But how willing am I to respond to Jesus Christ because of His authoritative presence in my life? How willing am I simply to do what He calls me to do because of who He is, because of His might and His power? Do I have both the affection for Christ that is right and fitting, but also the sense of awe for Christ, which is equally right and equally fitting? Do I love that He comes on the donkey, but I also respect that He comes on the horse? Right? We need to hold both of those together. And I fear that in the American church, in the comfortable American church, in the comfortable um, world in which we live, we love the sense of affection with Jesus Christ. But we oftentimes fail to embrace the sense of awe before who He is. Now, it's a both-and thing. Heard about the horse whisperer, Monty Roberts is his name. Maybe you haven't heard of him, but way back he worked on training horses, and, and out of that came, you know, the dog whisperer and the guinea pig whisperer, and I think we have the, the child whisperers now, right, for parenting. Um, nobody's ever been a cat whisperer, though, right? Because the cats are actually people whisperers. That's what it is. Anyway, uh, Monty Roberts figured out uh, this whole horse whispering thing, and he watched stallions in the wild and how they interrelated with each other. And I watched this video of him breaking a horse. And with the, it was 23 minutes, he had a saddle and a rider on a horse that had never been saddled before. And it used to be in the old days when they break a horse, it was a very combative kind of thing. They would just be at it with this horse, right? And it'd be just this battle of the wills. And he has flipped it around. And he, he stands in the middle, and it's amazing to watch. The horse will go one way, and they'll be looking for a way out. And they'll go the other way, be looking for a way out. They can't find a way out until finally they conclude, the only way for me to win is to submit to this man in the middle of the ring. And the moment when it happens, the horse's head bows. 
And he's got a microphone on. He's talking his way through it. And he says, there it is. She just submitted to me. And he turns his back a little bit. And the horse walks right up to his shoulder, submissively. And then a few minutes later, he's got a saddle on the horse. Jesus comes to us in that kind of way, both with the authority and the loving kindness. And the only option for us, really, for response is to submit. Is to submit. And we need to add that more and more to our... Submission needs to become more and more part of our repertoire. Not only do we need the affection for Christ, but the sense of awe for Christ, that he's living and he's present among us. And, and were he to be standing here, he is here, but were we, were we to see it, we would fall on our knees and we would treat each other differently and we'd think carefully about what we say because of his majesty. Let's not lose that from our repertoire, the authority of Jesus Christ And so the answer to the question that this passage asks is, who gave it? Who gave Jesus this authority? And the answer, which is just screaming off the page, even though Jesus doesn't say it outwardly, is that God the Father did. God gave him this authority. The whole stream of the redemptive process all screams out that Jesus Christ has the authority of God the Father. Therefore, will you submit? Lord Jesus, we want to submit to you. Some of us are new to this walk with you. And submission has not been something we've been practicing. And it's going to be tough. But we want you to walk us on that path. Some of us have been many, many years, decades even, walking with you. And perhaps we've forgotten the sense of awe that is most fitting in our approach to you as the one who made this world and redeemed it. Perhaps we become a little bit like the chief priests who are a little too willing to face you and reject you and reject your your voice in our lives. And so we repent of that sin of lack of submission this morning. We thank you for your loving kindness upon us to forgive us. And we ask you to renew us again in the gospel, the good news that your favor is upon us, that your love is over us, and that we're forgiven, and you come alongside us, and you want to teach us to live in your ways. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.